But when your blood is low in calcium, the pacemaker in the heart gets confused and it, it can't quite keep the rhythm right and you start getting arrhythmias. And we even see this with the oxalate coming back into the bloodstream from the tissues, no longer from the diet. When you change your diet, now you have this old stuff from your diet from the past in your cells, in tendons and joints, spaces and so on. And the body does want them gone and you're finally giving this opportunity so you can raise your oxalic acid levels in your blood, cause crashes of calcium levels and cause arrhythmias, heart palpitations, huge spikes in your blood pressure and so on. Welcome to the Radical Health Rebel podcast. I'm your host, Lee Brandon. This work started for me several decades ago when I started to see the impact I could make on people, helping them to identify the root cause of their health problems that no doctor could figure out, including serious back, knee, shoulder and neck injuries, acne and eczema issues, severe gut health problems, even helping couples get pregnant after several IVF treatments had failed. And it really moves me to be able to help people in this way. And that is why I do what I do and why we have this show. In this week's episode, I had the great pleasure to speak with Sally Norton, author of Toxic Superfoods, How Oxalate Superfoods Are Making You Sick and How to Get Better. Toxic Superfoods, the book, stands out to me as one of the best and most important books ever written on nutrition. And believe me, I've read many nutrition books. As you will discover, Sally is extremely knowledgeable on the subject of oxalates and the damage that they can do to human health. I believe this one of the most important interviews I've done and will make it part of my mission to spread this knowledge as far and wide as possible. With the current level of health and disease in the world, this information is greatly needed. If you're tuning into this episode, then I'm assuming that your health is important to you and I have little doubt the information contained within this episode will be of great value. Sally Norton, welcome to the Radical Health Rebel podcast. Thanks for coming on the show. Oh, it's excellent. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited about this episode. Um, as I was telling you just now, it's been a while since you know I've been trying to get you on and your team was trying to get you on here as well. So um, yeah, I'm really excited to have you on today. Thank you. So Sally, to kick things off, could you perhaps share with the audience your history, your professional background, and what led you to become interested in uh, toxic superfoods? Well, I have been a health geek my entire life and decided as a 12-year-old to get my career moving on nutrition as a form of health and wellness and disease prevention. And so I've been into this like eating right and figuring out what to eat right since I was probably three. Mm. And my health crashed. Anyway, I went to an Ivy League school here in the U.S. for my nutrition degree and went on to a very fine school for my master's in public health all along being dogged with health problems, I had to leave Cornell for four years of medical leave for foot surgery and had back pain and joint problems and fatigue and focus problems since I was a 12-year-old. And it just continued to dog me and get worse. And I did all the right eating, followed all the right rules, the perfect goody two-shoes on health and just a health, just struggle, struggle, struggle. And I was just it's a bit of a trauma <laughs> when you finally recognize that everything you've been doing, well, not everything, but the central tenets of what you think are building health are wrong. Mm. And that all along you've been misinformed and misguided and clueless about 
a whole missing piece of knowledge. And mm-hmm. that's got that's where I am now with the toxic superfoods message is that our we're struggling with a fair amount of ignorance around something that should matter a whole, whole bunch. Mm. And we're really stuck in mental and cultural ruts that are getting us now in a very risky situation. Mm. Yeah. What I find interesting, you know, you talk about people uh, thinking that they're doing the right thing. Now you could go back and talk about, you know, the food guy pyramid and, but most people know that that's a nonsense, right? Most people know that. But going beyond that, even now, you know, some of the, let's say, so-called top experts in nutrition (laughs) are still making the same mistake that you've really, you know, found out yourself. It's we're being misguided from every angle. The marketing, the random housewife who thinks she's suddenly the expert in nutrition and the professionals at the academic institutions, people running major agencies around the world, your clinical experts that you're turning to for health benefits. You can see it in the reviews and Amazon. Recently, I've seen additional reviews and I keep hearing from people the same story where I was doing this plant based diet for so long and I was fine for decades And then suddenly I wasn't. And so I went to the doctor and they told me to do more juices, more smoothies, and I got worse. I told them it's making me worse. And they said, keep doing it. Mm. (laughs) And boy, that's really a problem. We're not recognizing it. And then we're continuing to do the same thing that's causing the very problem we're trying to solve. Mm. Yeah, I had a lady on the show, I think it was about this time last year, called Giselle Bisson. And her Twitter handle is The Recovering Vegan. And she spoke quite a bit, actually, on that episode about oxalates and what that did to her and how she's going through quite a rough time kind mm-hmm. of recovering from the oxalate poisoning that she got from from her healthy diet, right? right. Um, which is really interesting. But as I was saying to you before before we started recording – I originally came across oxalates in 2004. So there were two books that I read in 2004, quite life-changing books, I have to say. Um, One was called The Metabolic Typing Diet by William Walcott. And the other one is Nourishing Traditions by Sally Fallon. Now, the main things that I took 20 years ago from oxalates, which is one of the toxic superfoods or part of the the toxic superfoods, was that what they do is they prevent the uptake of calcium. That was pretty much the main message I got from those books. But obviously, you know, your book, which we'll come on to talk about, goes a lot further than just the fact that it prevents the uptake of calcium. But in, in those books as well, and they are great books, they also talk about other anti-nutrients or plant toxins, you might call them, you know, like uh, lectins, tannins, phytic acid, etc. But in in your book, um, you talk predominantly about oxalates. Why, why is it particularly oxalates that you feel is important, perhaps over the other uh, anti-nutrients? Well, it turns out that it's one area that we have limited defense against, and there's not a good way to prepare foods to avoid 
this problem. And it's really much more absent from our consciousness. And yet in professional circles, researchers and clinicians and so on, there's a lot of dismissal going on as well. Whereas tannins and phytates are like, well, I don't know too much. That's a nutrition topic. But with oxalate, because we know oxalate causes kidney stones, it's a word that's a little bit familiar in clinical mm-hmm. circles. So the like light familiarity, but basically complete ignorance gives them lots of room to just like, well, dismiss it. Um, and you cannot get as sick. You cannot do near the damage with tannins and with phytates that you can do with oxalate. Now, lectins, they're becoming, for the same reasons in a way, they're becoming more and more of a concern because we're not using professional or traditional ways of preparing beans, for example, of soaking them properly for literally the research says you need three and a half days of soaking and then pressure cooker level heat to disarm lectins and you can disarm them. But lectins are a little bit confined to to areas and foods that are easily avoided. Oxalates, unfortunately, are in foods that we continue to promote and trust, and they continue to grow in popularity. And the only right defense is to control your exposure level. You can't cook it out or ferment it out or really work your way around it. Mm. Yeah, I guess I guess possibly the thing we haven't mentioned at this point is what are what are these substances and why, why do they exist? Right. Cause there's someone maybe listening to this thinking you talk, you're using all these words I've never heard, heard of before, but so could you explain kind of why they are in plant material? Well, I'm sure they're in other foods as well, but can you explain kind of why they exist? Well, as you say, the word oxalate is a foreign word to most people that most people have never heard that word. Even if you've had kidney stones, you're told you had a, calcium stone. No one said you had an oxalate stone, which 80% are. So it's not even in the vocabulary that nature makes it. It's in acid rain. It's in the soil and it's in plants because plants make it. It's a tiny little two carbon natural toxin that plants can use for their health and wellness and reproduction and self-defense that really isn't designed for us to handle. And it's, Mm. it's such an easy compound for nature to make it's sort of the end product of oxidation that even in liver metabolism, when you break down your connective tissue, just because tissues turn over and you use up materials and have to rebuild and replace your bones, your tendons, everything every day, a certain amount of that connective tissue, certain amino acids can be metabolized into oxalate. And even more so when your liver has inflammation and you're distressed and don't have enough B1 and and things like that. So it's everywhere in, in nature, but it's it's a toxin to humans, serious mm-hmm. toxin. And when it's poisoning, you can't even tell. Um, and so it happens to be that seeds and nuts are great at producing oxalic acid for the most part. A certain leafy green, spinach, Swiss chard, beet greens, and rhubarb leaves are known to be deadly. <laughs> but today we so praise the dark leafy green. I could just see some poor ignorant youngster thinking, oh, I'll just cook the tops of my rhubarb in my rhubarb patch and literally murder themselves by mistake. Mm. I mean, we know people drop dead from rhubarb leaves. It's that high. And we don't stop to think, well, how much of the rhubarb stock is okay? Just because I didn't die from it doesn't mean it isn't doing harm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the re I mean, the reason why those oxalates in plants 
is to protect themselves, isn't it? So obviously if, if an animal or a human, you know, eats too much of the plant, the plant's going to die. And obviously plants can't run away because they don't have legs and they've got roots into the ground, right? So it's it's the plant's way of basically, as you said, protecting itself. Yeah, the botanists talk about at least five different roles for oxalic acid and the calcium oxalate crystals they form with it for their own well-being and reproduction and so on. And just general metabolism, they need it. And it happens to also serve them really well as defense against defense against funguses and insects and so on. In the leaf, the, the plants can turn oxalic acid into peroxide and help fight funguses. In the bark, the plants turn the oxalates into these little blocky calcium crystals that are harder than teeth. That makes it very hard for the insect to bore holes into the tree. It makes total sense for them. It's a way of storing calcium. It's a way of sequestering calcium, getting calcium out of the way. It's a way of managing calcium. It does so much for the plants. The plants are busy worrying about themselves, not you. And you realize if you were to go out in nature and not have a knapsack full of snacks and you start getting hungry and you looked around for something to eat, how much is really out there that you feel you can consume and get something out of and not get sicker? Hmm. Not a lot. Yeah. You need a hunting arrow. <laughs> you need a bow. You need a snare. You would start figuring out how to trap squirrels and kill a deer in order to survive in the wilderness because there aren't enough edible plants. So hence, we've invented the produce department. We've invented most of the foods that are in the produce department, including the carrot, most of the cabbage family, the modern fruits. They're all pretty much human inventions because we love the idea of eating plants. We like access to carbohydrates and and textures and flavors. <clears throat> and we build cultural truisms and cuisines around herb seeds and and leaves and so on. Um, so we're really interested in the plant foods for our own consumption, but we've had to breed and manufacture them because they, we, nature, it doesn't make sense to be edible <laughs> when you're a stationary being like a plant. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's interesting you know, based on what you just said, if you look at the research by Weston A. Price, you know, was it in the 20s and 30s where he traveled all over the world looking for native tribes? And what he found was that animal foods were always the number one food of choice. So they would maybe supplement their foods with other non-animal foods, but their go-to foods were always animal-based. And highly prized and highly... Um revered and part of the culture and cultural rituals and so on were all centered around this. And even in the Bible, you see that a great sacrifice is to give up a fatted calf. You know, it's, it's a big deal to say, here, God, take what nourishes us and sustain us and, and, and be, be more than this for us, you know? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So what are some of the symptoms or signs that people <clears throat> might get with oxalate overload? Well, for some people, none. Crickets, silence. Your body will put up with a lot of this for a long time. And that gives you more room to like pretend that we're getting away with it. It's really interesting because there's a, uh, a British um, reality TV show about murders. And there's an episode from 2011 about a wife who tried to poison her husband and almost succeeded. She, he came this close to dying. He spent months in the hospital in a coma. And when he did finally come out of the coma, he was deaf and blind and liver damage and had many other problems. 
And the whole time, what was wrong with him was oxalate poisoning, and the clinical people could not recognize it. So even when you're dying of oxalate poisoning, the clinical people don't see it, and we don't see it. So it can be silent for because the symptoms aren't there, or it can be silent because we don't have a clue on how to listen to the body and read the signs. But if you have signs of oxalate issues, or you could just take a high oxalate meal juice a little half a star fruit or some green, make a green smoothie, and then check in with yourself 90 minutes later and say, hmm, how's my attention? How's my energy? How's my digestive tract? How's my brain working? How are my aches and pains going? And you might be able to notice things are not great. You may start getting hiccups or belching. You might get masseter pain or any kind of joint inflammation. You could start being grumpy, irritable, impatient, panicky, worried, (laughs) In the old literature from the 1840s, 50s, and 60s, there's descriptions of the symptoms include things like anticipation of impending doom. (laughs) It's one of the symptoms because there's a lot of neurotoxicity with oxalates because it is a chelator of calcium and other electrolytes. You mess up the electrolytes, especially, especially calcium for a nerve cell and boy, things start going wrong. And there's a fair degree of distress. It turns on nerve cells in this on position that can cause spasms. And that's where you get the belching and the bloating and the hiccups and maybe diarrhea or constipation or muscle knots or fibromyalgia, you name it, reflux. There's all kinds of weird things that can go on when you're just poisoning the nerves, but there's also turning on the immune system in where you've got deposits now forming in tissues. You can get aches and pains and gout-like symptoms. But in the short run, within an hour of that green smoothie, you've damaged the immune cells. And they're now putting out pro-inflammatory cytokines, and they're not able to handle infection. So if you have chronic sinus infections, chronic yeast infections, things that keep coming back, and you have to keep getting antibiotics, like I did as a little child who was eating rhubarb, uh, ending up on, you know, penicillin, strep throat, ear infections, and then I had my tonsils out. Those were probably signs that the diet was already too high in oxalate for me as a little kid. And it's very much about accumulation as well, though, isn't it? So obviously, as you get older, you might accumulate more deposits in the body. And eventually the system breaks from having to deal with those deposits. It's constantly having to hold on to it. And one of the reasons it's doing this is because the day-to-day onslaught coming in is so exceeding your safe level in your bloodstream and in your kidneys and in your urinary tract, which is where it leaves the body principally, is in order to protect the blood, hence the heart and the critical organs and protect the kidneys, which are really important regulatory organs. It's not just cleaning your blood. They do so much for you. And the body's smart enough to protect the kidneys from damage by holding on to the crystals. And of course, the crystals that form because it's the acid you're absorbing. You're eating crystals and acid. The crystals are there to irritate and wear down your teeth and irritate the gut. And the acid can get into the bloodstream and start damaging the cells of the vascular tissue and damaging the cells in the blood, like the the immune cells and the red blood cells, goes straight to the liver, uses up a lot of glutathione there, then goes straight to the heart, can start collecting in tissues wherever, wherever there's inflammation, infection, 
injury, tissue recovery, because when a cell is replicating, it has a certain style that makes it stickier to oxalate. And when a, when cell bits are fragments are around because the cell was injured today or is dying, that creates this environment where precipitation happens. What precipitation means is that the acid and then the little calcium oxalate individual molecules start coming together and forming crystals and you start getting nanocrystal formation. Nanocrystals of any kind of particularly calcium oxalate are the most toxic form that you can have of oxalate in your body. And that's invisible and science has no way to really see them or measure them, but you're basically forming nanocrystals after you consume these foods and you can get acute problems that may or may not have symptoms. And in the, in the background, you're building up this debt where you're accumulating accumulating oxalates in tissues that are really, you don't want them in. Your eyeballs, number one, your thyroid, number two, your kidneys, your bone marrow, that's where all your blood cells are born, and your bones, etc., and your tendons, and it keeps going. Mm. Yeah, and the other thing as well, that I, again, it was clear in your book, is that, you know, the, the blood needs an optimal level of calcium at any one point. And if it gets too low, then it's going to start leaching it from the bones. And then obviously that can lead to things like osteoporosis as well. Yes. And it creates a certain inflammation that adds to the acidity. Oxalic acid is adding an acidity component and then it's adding an inflammatory component and both are causing acidity. So you use the bones not just to replace the missing calcium, but you use the bones to replace the the alkalinity that you need. You need it closer to a neutral pH. And if it keeps going acid, the bones have to be the chalk that you use to to manage that pH. The pH is not a compromise. We will use your bones to the nth degree to save the pH so that you can function. But when your blood is low in calcium, the pacemaker in the heart gets confused and it, it can't quite keep the rhythm right and you start getting arrhythmias. We even see this with the oxalate coming back into the bloodstream from the tissues, no longer from the diet. When you change your diet, now you have this old stuff from your diet from the past in your cells, in tendons and joints, spaces and so on. And the body does want them gone and you're finally giving this opportunity so you can raise your oxalic acid levels in your blood, cause crashes of calcium levels and cause arrhythmias, uh, heart palpitations, huge rays, uh, spikes in your blood pressure and so on. Strange numbers in your tests happen. There's just a lot of mayhem can start happening when there's too much oxalate in the body because it is this, the simple act of being able to steal calcium makes it profoundly toxic. And it does more than that. And of course, the downstream effects of that is are profoundly toxic. The way it's damaging membranes, but the way it's turning on inflammation in response to that damage, the way it's interfering with enzyme function. It, the number of mechanisms are huge, but if all we had was calcium interference, that's enough to be toxic. Mm. Yeah. So in, in my practice, you know, I, I look after kind of three main niche types of people. One of them is persistent or chronic pain. Mm. Do you, could you maybe share a story of a, of a client of yours where they've come in and they're in physical pain and you've helped them change their diet and that's kind of helped them get rid of their pain. Have you got such a story you could share? Well, in general, I can tell you that that is probably the most common scenario where I get feedback from, from whether it's an Instagram message, a DM or a, a email to my website or from my clients, really persistent problems with pain. Physical therapy didn't help it. 
pain medications don't help it. Everything they try to do, exercise and all the different kinds, acupuncture and so on, if they get any relief, it's very temporary. And and lo and behold, <laughs> now they're out of pain. I mean, I had foot problems for 30 years. And then I suddenly didn't when I quit eating sweet potatoes and Swiss chard. I was like, what? Wow. Wow. It's amazing how much suffering can be going on and not know it. And of course, then there's inflammatory pain, there's skeletal muscular pain, there's all this sort of fibrotic pain, a basic connective tissue unhappiness where inflammation just shows up in tendons and joints and so on over and over again. And that's sort of a downstream effect of all this connective tissue damage and chronic inflammation where it's like any little thing that ups inflammation starts turning on pain in different tissues. And we get a lot of relief from that, but you can also be revisiting that as the body tries to clear out these areas because when you've got particulate pollution in your joints and tendons, the immune system has to go in there and basically perform surgery mm. without anesthetic. And when you when you derive the immune system anywhere, you have to open up the circulation and push immune cells into tissues and you create pressure and fluids and activity and cytokines and all kinds of activities in the body that can be unpleasant. Gout's a great example, but there's other forms of joint pain and and struggling with pain that can be oxalate related. It's really lovely to finally get a moment of peace and finally be able to do something, get in and out of the car without ouching and grabbing body parts and not being afraid of picking up a grocery sack or something like that. Pain is Number one. And then the other big area is mental pain, despair, despondency, grief, depression, anxiety, unable, inability to get past a PTSD or a trauma, being stuck in an addiction. All of these things start resolving in people who get rid of the toxin. You mm-hmm. could think of a, a toxic brain is physically toxic. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I'm going to share my own story with pain. Now, my apologies to my long-term listeners because they've heard this story multiple times, but for for new listeners, it'll be a first time for you. So about four and a half years ago, I moved to where I'm currently living. And I said to myself, I'm going to eat less meat because I eat a lot of meat. And I was eating about 1.5 kilos of meat a day at that point. And... I thought, well, what, what would I replace it with? Because I still need the calories. And I know I do well on fat and protein. I don't do particularly well on plant-based foods anyway. And I thought, well, back in the 90s, for breakfast, I used to have a massive bowl of oats, maybe with banana and honey and a protein shake. Now, it probably wasn't a particularly good quality protein shake back then. But I thought, well, why don't I try that? And let's see how it goes. So... I got a much better quality protein shake, a very, very good quality one. Although, interestingly, reading your book, I realized hmm, there's probably some oxalates in it because it's made from beef collagen. So I thought, okay, made a note of that. So anyway, I started eating um, protein shake and, and oats for breakfast. And the first thing that I noticed, I wasn't surprised about, I was really hungry <laughs> within about two hours. You know, I used to eating, you know, maybe half a kilo of beef for breakfast. You know, that would that would sustain me until lunch. But I kind of thought, well, let's just let's just go with it. And what I didn't realize around the same time, shortly after I changed my diet, 
Now, you're not going to be surprised at all to hear this, Sally. I started to get knee pain when I was playing tennis. Knee pain in my good knee, I must just add. So mm. I would play tennis at the weekend. I'd go to the gym. I could train at the gym fine. I could even lift heavy, not a problem in the gym. But when I was playing tennis, it would hurt, and it would hurt for about five days. So by the mm. time the week had ended and it was back to the weekend, the pain had gone, so I could go and play tennis, but then it would be it would, there'd be pain when I played tennis again. And that went on for about three years. And I kept thinking, oh, I need to, I need to sort this out, you know. And so I was with a friend once who's, he's an osteopath. And I said, oh, you couldn't just run some tests on my knee. I think it's, you know, my medial collateral or my medial meniscus. And he did those tests. He went, no, it's definitely not that. Anyway, he ran some tests and he said, you've got osteoarthritis in your knee. I was like, hmm, okay, that's interesting. So to cut a long story short, I then decided to cut the oats out of my diet. Now, for three years, I could only flex my knee to 90 degrees. So you should be able to get your ankle and touch your backside, right? I could only bend the knee 90 degrees instead of about 135 because of the pain. Well, three weeks after stopping the oats, I had absolutely no pain in my knee and it's never returned. Yeah. <laughs> Very interesting. There's there's a lot in oats too that could be pro-inflammatory mm. and increasing. There's a lot of different things in oats. And, and with the oxalate content of oats, what's fascinating is that there are so many varieties of oats that it could have been that you got a hold of a particularly high oxalate variety of oats that you were using, whereas someone else might have had a different variety. And of course, it's a different person, so you can't really compare across people. Mm. But it's fascinating that one grain used routinely can take you down and take the fun mm. out of your life. Mm. And it's a simple switch, but some people are really committed to their oatmeal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've, I wasn't. I mean, it, it wasn't. It wasn't even my preferred breakfast. It was my substitute, really. Um, but interestingly, what I did was I cut the oats out. I kept the protein shake, and I had. I wasn't as hungry, so I could actually. I was actually fine. I could. I could last till lunch because I didn't have the oats. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I've been pain free since. That's so nice. It's so mm. nice. Without any surgery or drugs. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's beautiful. So I kind of I kind of think I know the answer to this question, but how how widespread would you say oxalate overload is? Leah was a 27-year-old who worked in insurance. Leah had never made much of an effort to eat healthily and she loved chocolate. Before the age of 27, she ate whatever she wanted. And she managed to maintain a very healthy figure and a completely clear skin. So it was a big shock to her when she broke out for the first time in her life, just months away from her wedding. Leah was in a panic because she didn't want bad skin on her wedding day. After testing, it was found that Leah had a minor dysbiosis and a parasite infection that may or may not have been causing health issues, as sometimes parasites can be present without causing problems. I advised Leah on her nutrition and lifestyle and helped improve her gut microbiome. A few months in, there was some but not much improvement in Leah's skin and she was in a state of panic. At that point, I tested for heavy metals and it turned out that Leah had very high levels of mercury in her blood. When explaining the potential causes, I mentioned that fish, especially tuna, has mercury in it 
And it turns out that Leah had eaten tuna for lunch every day for years. I advised Leah to use liposomal glutathione to help remove the mercury from her blood. And in a matter of weeks, Leah's skin was back to normal. If you'd like to achieve the same kind of result as Leah, you can now follow a comprehensive step-by-step guide in my brand new book, Eliminating Adult Acne for Good, available now from all major online bookstores and via my website at www.bodycheck.co.uk forward slash books. It's as widespread as potatoes and peanut butter and whole wheat bread and chocolate. And it's becoming more and more of a problem, I think, for younger people. And it used to be that you could see the, you know, the sort of standard oxalate problem is the kidney stone. Used to be that it was men in their 40s, usually white men in their 40s, who would get kidney stones and hardly anyone else. And now it's more and more females and more and more children and preteens and teenagers coming up with things like kidney stones. And of course, because oxalate interferes with basic immune function, vascular function, neurological function, cell function, cell metabolism, cell energy production, it can take you in any direction a problem. And it's going to interfere with your health, no matter who you are or what you are, in ways that are under the radar. So any health problem would be beneficial, would, would excuse me, would benefit from oxalate awareness and cutting back on the oxalates. So it's everywhere. That's the, that's what surprised me the most. Because when I realized in my case, it was me and my sweet potatoes and my lifelong comfort level with Swiss chard, not knowing that it's the worst green I could possibly do that I thought, well, it's just me and maybe a few others and I'll get out there and start teaching it and see if other people need this. And lo and behold, it seems like everybody needs to know this information Mm -hmm. And it should be as standard as knowing how much sugar and proteins in a food or mm. that kind of thing. Yeah, it's interesting. Again, you know, reading through the book, it was so many things have been going through my mind, you know, for me personally. And I'm thinking, oh, crikey, yeah. You know, I'm thinking of some of the meals I have. And I'm thinking, oh, actually, even though I eat a very predominantly animal-based diet, the things that I'm adding to that, and I, and I might come on to that in, in later on, but so many things have been going through my mind and reading a lot of the symptoms that you, that you list in the book. And I think, Oh, that's so-and-so. Oh, and they've got that symptom and this symptom and, and that one. And, and it just starts to add up. And then you think, well, then you look at what they eat and you think, well, no wonder, (laughs) you know, if I, if I give you an example, one person, I won't, I won't mention their name. If they listen to this, they'll know it's them. But so, so this person was diagnosed with high blood pressure. I'm trying to think of it in chronological order. Cyritic arthritis, mm. vascular dementia, mm. prostate cancer, hard of hearing, teeth loss. And this person's diet is pretty much shredded wheat for breakfast, sandwiches for lunch, potatoes for dinner. Mm. It just when you read when you think of that for me that was like wow that just completely adds up. I mean, am I right in thinking that you know all or most of those symptoms could be oxalate related? I would hundred percent agree that they are. Yeah, and yeah. it's and an older person. Common. 
it sounds like you're describing a 90 year old guy, right? But those it's things not, are it's happening. Not far off. <laughs> That's where we end up, you know? And so maybe it's just this quote aging, what we think of as aging, but aging is what everybody's trying to run away from. And it turns out that the low oxalate approach to eating is a fountain of youth. It's amazing how suddenly you stop aging or reverse your aging. I was a person who felt like they were 80 all through my 20s and mid 30s. I hung out in retirement communities because they were my people, because I could relate to that. Mm. And now, nowhere like that. If, if I had to guess what my age is, I'd say, oh, I'm about to turn 40. But in fact, I'm about to turn 60. Mm. <laughs> like, it's great to finally feel like a whole person. Mm. Yeah, there's there's someone else as well that I was thinking about. And so they they drink copious amounts of English tea, mm -hmm. live pretty much off sandwiches uh, and potato, and they have osteoporosis, heart palpitations, tinnitus, vertigo, uh, fainting, uh, I could, I I probably oh, heart arrhythmias. Again, I mean, that just sounds like a classic oxalate over, overload, doesn't it? It does. It does. A lot of those are electrolyte problems and mm. mineral deficiency. Yep. And, th and this person's been to the hospital free well, not multiple frequently, times. multiple times, <laughs> and they just shrug their shoulders and like, well, we've got no idea what's going on. Well, that's why I put together the symptoms and exposure inventory that's been on my website for years. It's also in the book, Toxic Superfoods, where a person can evaluate, here are all the foods I've been eating, here are all my symptoms, and they can see multiple symptoms in different body parts, multiple foods over, the, over their lifetime that they've relied on. And then they can look at their risk factors as well that put that all on steroids. If you've taken a lot of NSAIDs, if you've had other reasons to have leaky gut and gut problems and other forms of inflammation that affect the uh, intestinal tract, if you have kidney issues or family history of kidney issues, these kinds of things will definitely put you in a situation. Oh, in a actually, really sorry. big one. So one, one of the people I was speaking about has, has chronic kidney disease. You can do a lot for kidneys. They'll, they mm -hmm. want to come back. They will come back. They, it's not a death sentence, any of these things. Like the body will recover if you get it soon enough. But the longer you go not paying attention to this, the harder it is. The recovery process is not going to ever be 100%, and it's not going to be fun. And mm. I think you ought to have a little more fun in life, and good fun means feeling good. Yeah. So I was going to mention that bariatric surgery is a huge risk factor. At least 50% of them end up with kidney stones and urinary tract damage from being hyper absorbers of oxalate. And what that means is a much higher proportion of the oxalate in their food goes straight into their bloodstream rather rapidly because the whole point of bariatric surgery is to create a malabsorption problem. And when you have malabsorption, that also liberates oxalate for easy um, passage into the bloodstream. Mm. Yeah, there's one, one other person, again, who kept coming through my mind and I actually kept sending them stuff from your book actually and this person's going to read your book by the way um right. so this person has fibromyalgia mm -hmm. and has been diagnosed with but again we're not sure how accurate uh cyritic arthritis rheumatoid arthritis um, polymyalgia 
osteoporosis, anemia, anxiety. Again, there's probably more that I can't think of off the top of my head. Classic. All of it is classic oxalate problems. Absolutely. Mm. So you get this radar once you once you sort of understand this pattern and how it plays out, and you see these assemblages of problems. It's like oh, poisoning syndrome right there. Mm. And also, and also, the last person is also a vegetarian. So again, it's 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 more difficult, isn't it, to eat low oxalate when you're a vegetarian? It, particularly vegan, it's difficult. You end mm. up living on white rice and fairly low nutrition foods that just don't have much protein. They don't have much nutrients in it. And you're, you're going to have a hard time thriving on an, on being just generally undernourished. So mm. you can certainly reverse gout and reverse symptoms and feel much better, even as a vegan paying attention to where the oxalates are, but you're going to be living on black eyed peas, white rice and lettuce and salads. And it's, it's also not going to be satisfying. So there's mm. going to be that, other difficulty that comes with just feeling this want your body is going to hunger for real nutrients. And there's mm. a certain sallowness to your whole spirit. Mm. But I guess, again, from what I got from your book was even if you are vegetarian, I'm not necessarily talking vegan, but vegetarian, even though it's potentially more difficult, it's still possible to eat a low oxalate diet, right? Most definitely, for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's plenty of plants. And, of course, if you're vegetarian usually includes eggs and milk and cheese and products from animal milk. So you can build a lot of meals on those foods, for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you've mentioned quite a few of the foods already that are high in oxalates. What would be, I don't know, maybe like your top 10 high oxalate foods to avoid? Almonds, top of my list. And sadly, I normally wouldn't put star fruit at the top of the list, but I just saw somebody on social media who I know from past life who is juicing star fruit and letting her one-year-old child have it. Star fruit will kill you. It only takes about 10 ounces of star fruit to drop a grown man dead. It's right up there at rhubarb level of oxalate level. Normally, I wouldn't put that at the top 10, but these days... Whatever crazy high oxalate food you get thinking is okay could be a problem. So it's really about the food you eat. But the ones that are really popular right now that are people are pushing are cocoa and, and cocoa and dark chocolate, almonds, cashews, and peanuts, green, dark green, especially spinach, hidden in pancakes and green everything, like green muffins, like no. Chia is like the thing, chia puddings, chia parfaits, chia this, chia that. Of course, beets and beet juice are supposed to be so great. And so people are actually buying beet juice as if it's really food and consuming it. <laughs> mm. Sweet potatoes was one of mine. And then there's the blackberries and the raspberries, which people are saying, oh, just put fresh raspberries in your blender every morning, even in the middle of winter. And um, they're available now. Uh, so that's another thing is that you can get these fresh berries any old time. You can get Swiss chard and spinach any old time. Uh, then you have people going on gluten-free diets. So they're going to go for the buckwheat and the buckwheat noodles, the teff, the quinoa. Quinoa is super popular. It's high in saponins as well and other problems. But people say, oh, it's high protein. 
benefits only. Oh, it might have more protein than other grains. That doesn't make it a great source of protein, nor does it make it a great food. Uh, quinoa, and then there's arrowroot and other things, cassava, plantain that are made into chips, snack chips made from roots. You can get that on an airplane. They'll give you some taro chips full of beets and taro, and these are all high oxalate foods. Mm. So a lot of the newfangled, like get around the wheat problem, get around the dairy problem with the almond milks and the almond substitutes, either on a keto diet or on a dairy-free diet or gluten-free diet. So the more you're trying to pursue health and be good, you can start adding these foods. So some of the problems are the advice, the general advice to be afraid of dairy, be afraid of gluten at all costs and not be afraid of oxalate. That's where the ignorance is so concerning is that you have a partial truth and you then spin up a solution without ever testing your solution for its safety. Mm. We just use a lot of wishful thinking that plants are safe to consume in any amount, as long as it's not our demon of the day, which is, you know, oxalate. It's not the demon of the day yet. It, it should be on the list of something mm. we care about. It's a known toxin in nature. It kills critters, it kills farm animals, and it can destroy the well-being in your life and in your family. Um, and unfortunately, we think we know stuff. So we have this so-called knowledge about, well, maybe dairy is a problem or this or that. And it's really just become a habit and it's making everyone a sucker. And we're drawn to these false promises with food marketing and pretty messages online. And we're suddenly we're making chia pudding and we're blundering into stores and selecting pretty packages full of high oxalate ingredients, trail mixes loaded with chocolate plus all the nuts and high oxalate dried fruits and then we're teaching each other how to create these disasters on Instagram and elsewhere and ignorantly eroding each other's health without a clue and that's what's frightening is that we should take the time I know it's you don't have time but take the time to devote some effort to really give some consideration to the many toxic effects of oxalate and try it out and see how you feel it's like Somehow it's still because we haven't heard of it and it's not just common knowledge. The first impulse is go, that can't be right. Mm. Yeah, well, I've heard that. I've heard that saying quite a lot in the last four years, but that's that's another <laughs> rabbit hole that we're not going to go down today. Um, the other the other area, well, one other area that I work with quite a lot is gut health. Mm. What kind of effects do oxalates have on gut health? It's very interesting because the original diagnosis that was put out in 1842 from England was that the primary symptom of oxalate poisoning was gut health. It was always gut problems. And what they were seeing back then were episodes of what seemed like obstruction, colonic obstruction. They thought they were dying from intestinal obstruction. So it can be paralysis of the intestinal motility, which can look like IBS, where you can go back and forth between diarrhea and constipation. It can be chronic constipation. It could be chronic fecal incontinence, where you have random periods of diarrhea occurring so randomly you don't even feel it because the nerves and the rectum are now also paralyzed and can't tell you that you're having a bowel event. So there's that. There's leaky gut problems. There's other forms of dysmotility where you can get reflux or you can get uh, this bloating and belching pattern. And I think that's part of the dysmotility where you have 
The normal peristalsis is making an effort to move everything in an outward direction. But when it's all disorganized, you get this ferment where it's moving back and forth and back and forth, and it creates gas and bloating and pain. You can get very sharp pains. You can end up with hemorrhoids and other issues as well. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like we're covering every symptom known to man, isn't it? But that's almost the way it is, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's going to affect the gallbladder. So that could affect your fat digestion and it could affect your pancreas, which could affect your digestion in general. So if you're just not even digesting things well, that could be another sign. Mm. Yeah, and interestingly, the other the other kind of main kind of niche I, I work with in myself is is on the skin because I, I suffered really badly with acne for 18 years. I've had eczema as well. Mm. Um, my sister suffered from eczema as a kid. I've got another family member that's got eczema at the moment. And if you're affecting the gut, you're affecting the skin, right? That's certainly my experience. Yeah. And, and for some people, the immune system really shows up on the skin. And I, I wonder if it's because the skin is such a huge organ of potential detox and release of toxins that under toxic conditions, it's an important place to go. Because if the kidneys are overwhelmed and the gut is having paralysis and is becoming toxic from the dysmotility, what's left? You've got to breathe it out. You've got the saliva, you've got eye excretions, which probably are a form of excretion of the fluids that bathe the nervous, central nervous system, the spinal column and the brain, literally, I mean, I think the eye fluids in a way are sort of a toilet for the brain to get rid of stuff as well. Mm -hmm. So some of us get eye symptoms, which are very common. And there's a whole subset of people with oxalate poisoning who get the eczema, rashes, acne, frail skin, skin that can pop open and start weeping. Uh, and there's, but not all of us get that. You know, it's very different. I get very few skin symptoms. When I get something that I think is from oxalate, it's usually an eye sty or a little little white bump in my skin that sits there for six months, a hard thing, and it comes and goes with hardness and tenderness and eventually it goes away. But I don't get all that drama. But I have some clients, many beautiful, precious women, who just break out in scabs all over their face as their body starts clearing the oxalate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amir was a 42-year-old professional man suffering from acne. He was overweight, suffering from low confidence, and he had very low energy levels when he first came to see me. He was also spending £400 per month on products to cover up his acne. His skin was very oily, his face and scalp were covered in acne, and he worried that it might start to affect his work. Amir was a sugar lover, and it took him some time to wean himself off of sugar but slowly over time, Amir made the necessary changes. Upon testing his gut microbiome, it was discovered that he did have a minor imbalance of gut microbes, including Staphylococcus aureus, which is often linked to skin conditions. He had hormonal imbalances, which would have affected his energy levels and a number of food sensitivities that may have been causing his acne. Amir was also given supplementation to help rebalance his gut microbiome and his hormones. And within a few weeks, his skin improved to the point where he had clear skin for the first time in 30 years. If you would like to achieve the same kind of result as Amir, you can now follow a comprehensive step-by-step guide in my brand new book, Eliminating Adult Acne for Good, available now from all major online bookstores and via my website 
at www.bodycheck.co.uk forward slash books. So whilst I've got you here, I just want to run through perhaps a few things in my own current diet and thing and if you could suggest what might be a way, you know, alternatives, let's say. So the first thing I mentioned is my breakfast. So I switched four and a half years ago to a grass-fed beef collagen protein. So obviously that's got some level of oxalate in it. Now I switched between two flavors. Now both of them have got issues <laughs> I've found out. So one is chocolate flavored. So that's an issue. The other one I've been putting mixed berries in. Right. So, right. so one right. thing I've, so one thing I've already thought, okay, I don't need to mix berries. If I want berries, I could put blueberries in it. Right. That would be an option. Right. Right. If, but if you're still having gut problems, the little seeds and the skin and the blueberries could still be irritating, even if it's right. not a high oxalate food. And then if you're using cups and cups of them, then it, it's really about portion size. So mm. under a cup of blueberries is fine as long as mm. you're not now sensitive to the the seeds in the skin, which have lectins or whatever other irritants. Uh, and yeah, the protein powder is interesting. That sort of blender-based meal is always a temptation to add some oxalate ingredients for people, whether it's the berries or the cacao powder or the almond milk or the almond butter or a little turmeric, or let's just throw in a little something and thicken it up with a little chia seed or something. And you're starting to layer in the oxalates. Mm. Of course, the collagen itself is technically not oxalate at all. It's a precursor that the liver has to metabolize is extra hanging around. And as the liver is doing this metabolism, some percentage of that turns into oxalate in the body. So you're you're increasing oxalate loads in the body with a tablespoon or more, that's what, 15 milliliters or something of powder is enough to raise oxalate levels. And most people are using three times that at least in a blender. Yeah. So what what would your recommendation be? Well, I'm not really a fan of using the blender for a meal, uh, but you could... You could use bone broth and you still get some you still get some collagen, but not as much, and then you can turn it into like a soup and it can be a cold soup or a hot soup and use a thermos as you would anyway for a cold smoothie if you're traveling with it. So I would say smoothies are like a poor man's soup. <laughs> make a rich man's soup, make a tube bone broth, throw in a can of coconut milk and some leftover meat and whatever else you'd like in there. And, and have a real food rather than a manufactured protein powder, which has had some degree of processing, which is probably not making it better. Mm. Okay. Now I have two, two of my favorite meals that I cook each week. Again, I've just realized they're probably a disaster when it comes to oxalate. Now there's a lot of meat and there's not a lot, there's not a lot of plant material. However, one is a bolognese. So obviously there's a lot of tomato in there. Uh, yeah, there's a fair amount of tomato in there. The other one is chili con carne. So that's got tomato, it's got chili powder, and it's got uh, red kidney beans. Well, the red kidney beans, they're the leptin poster child, right? <laughs> they're problematic food. The red kidney bean, not a good idea. You could switch that out with um, black eyed peas, uh, maybe um, lima beans. There are a few beans, mung beans, but the black eyed pea, 
your standard beans are pretty high in oxalate, but the pea family, not so low, even some chickpeas. That would be interesting to do a chickpea chili. Mm. Chili powder is not that high in oxalate. Okay. And neither is cayenne. It's the turmeric and some of the other spices, and you layer them in. And with chilies, you tend to be layering in lots of spices, and it starts to become a real problem with the spices. So, But reasonable amounts of... Um, of paprika is pretty low. Chili powder is not bad. Cayenne is pretty low. So you can spice up a dish and still have low oxalate. Switch out the beans or eliminate them altogether. It's good to have some carbs, though. So I like the idea of some peas. If you can soak them ahead of time, and make sure they're well cooked and you're dealing with the lectin side. And tomatoes are interesting because tomatoes vary a lot, apparently, in oxalate content. And it seems that the Tomato varieties that are used to make tomato paste are very low in oxalate or low enough that tomato paste isn't that high. So you can use some tomato paste and get away with it. You can use some ketchup and get away with that. There, you know, a can of chopped tomatoes is probably okay. If you can get rid of the skin and seeds, that would even assure you that you're removing some more oxalate because the skin and the seeds are areas where these problem compounds hang out. So I think it's, you know, not excessive amounts of tomato, and avoiding the turmeric and not overdoing cumin, that's common in chili to use a cumin, which is, but a small amount will be okay. If you're using a, you know, what, a mill or two, a small amount of cumin, you can get that background flavor, especially as it sits there. And switch to white pepper instead of black pepper. White pepper is a little spicier and it has very little oxalate versus black pepper. So you make some subtle shifts in your choice of seasonings. And don't over tomatoize it and switch out the beans and you're good to go. And you could add in some other, you know, chili is like kind of stew. You can do whatever you want. So you could throw in some some rutabaga or turnip or some other thing if you wanted a little bit of some more chew, more textural diversity, slight remote amount of carbs in there. You could do it. Oh, good. Good. Uh, I don't feel so bad now. I was thinking I was going to have to throw those out the window and think of something else. People have so much fear about changing their diet and having to mm. think too hard and giving up things, but it's really, it's not so bad. Mm. So you've just given me some really good examples of how you can maybe swap things. Can you maybe give some more kind of common advice that you give to people in terms of swapping high oxalate to low oxalate alternatives? Well, salad's real easy because the lettuce greens, especially romaine lettuce, are very low in oxalate. So if you can get trusted greens that aren't contaminated with salmonella, then most of your lettuce greens are fine. So just get away from throwing spinach. And the the mescaline mix that includes the little baby beet greens and so on for their redness, you want to not use that very much or, you know, dilute that down with, with lettuce and you'll be fine with salads. With the greens, instead of the chard, there's the mustard greens, turnip tops, even collards and kale aren't so bad. But mustard greens and turnip tops are very low. Radish tops are very low. So all those are from the cabbage family vegetable. So just don't use chard and beet tops. I grew up on the beet tops. Like we were big into beets growing up and they grew beautifully where I was from. Uh, So what else we got? The nuts. I say with nuts, try to go with cheese and meat and eat real meals because nuts are mostly used as a snack food, as a run around town and have it in your car kind of food here. That's what people do. They'll take it on their trips and so on just because they don't have to do anything with it. Well, cheese is practically you don't have to do anything with it. You bite it. You might need a knife, but it's pretty simple. It has that same convenience factor 
if your gut is healthy and you're still tolerating the dairy foods. We'll get to that with some people. We can get back to better gut. In fact, a lot of people tell me once they're low oxalate, they can now have bread again, they can have cheese and dairy again, and it diversifies their diet. Mm -hmm. Before they were busy trying to heal their gut, so they were busy avoiding dairy and gluten. And it turns out that what they need to avoid was the oxalate, and now they can have their dairy and gluten and their gut health too. So don't be afraid that, oh, I have to eat these almonds because I can't eat anything else. It's probably quite the opposite. Mm. So yeah. what else can we swap out? Chocolate? Well, you don't have to go zero oxalate. So there's room for a chocolate chip cookie if you can get a cookie made with good fats and good ingredients. Um, because there's just a few chocolate chips in there. So it's not a zero oxalate situation. You you don't want to go zero oxalate if you've been really high anyway, because you don't want to loosen up all those oxalates in your eyeballs and tendons and shoulder <laughs> joints. So you, you don't have to go, and I don't recommend that you go extremely perfect on this. So you can play around with it, take your time, give yourself six months or a year to learn it, and then keep learning and keep learning and keep learning because this is a lifetime skill. So you're not going to just learn it from one podcast and off you go. Mm. Yeah, one of one of the things I have swapped out already. So I make I make myself a, a chicken liver passe every week. Nice. And I and I normally have carrot and or celery to to dip. Mm. They've gone already, and I've got cucumber instead. You so. know what's really good with pates is is uh, pork rinds. Oh. Oh, put your pate on your pork rind and you'll never go back to a celery. <laughs> well, I know um, both my parents grew up with liver and bacon. That yeah, was, you, was... I can't see making liver taste good without bacon anyway. So mm-hmm. you can see how they're a match made in heaven. And the, the textural contrast is so profound. You have this smooth, smooth, soft pudding-like pate and this very crunchy, light, fluffy pork skin and it's delicious mm. you can tell i like it mm. i've got a emu liver in there i'm waiting to make into pate but it you gotta let it sit in the fridge like four days for it to really taste good pates i like mm. them to sit oh I, I like eating mine as soon as it's cooked it's still because well, it's delicious <laughs> oh love it i absolutely love it yeah so we started off the interview kind of talking about the um, let's say lack of knowledge around oxalates. Why do you think the medical profession is you know so limited in terms of its knowledge of oxalates? That's a big sticky wicket, really, because there's so many factors: cultural, personal, mental laziness is especially important in medicine because they're overwhelmed with too much work. Mm-hmm. and high expectations without enough space to really deliver what they need to. And they're highly influenced. The whole culture of medicine has now been so profoundly shaped by the needs and interests of the pharmaceutical industry and their need to be very profitable and have great power from their money. And so unfortunately, a lot of protocols and a lot of standard things that are knowledge in medicine are really sneaky marketing campaigns from <laughs> from the uh, pharmaceutical industry. And unfortunately, a lot of doctors, they're there because they plan to make good salaries and they invest their financial affluence in pharmacy stocks. Mm. They have an inherent conflict of interest prescribing medications in which they own stock. And that's allowed. Mm. So there's a lot of problems in healthcare now that 
give oxalate a big pass. Your doctors don't know about this. They're not interested in knowing about it. Very few doctors went to medical school to ask you about what you put in your salads. That's just not what they're there for. Mm. A lot of them are action-oriented people who want to give surgery and make something happen. They don't want to sit and think about your brunch menu. They're not interested in that. Mm. Yeah, I can imagine that, you know, if if everyone in the world had a copy of your book, it would seriously dent the profit margins of the pharmaceutical industry. Profoundly so. Mm. I think I need a bulletproof vest. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking, as I was saying that, I was thinking, well, should I be saying this? <laughs> <laughs> well, now you've heard it here, folks. If I'm gone, <laughs> suspect you're, evil. You're, you're definitely not thinking of committing suicide we can say that now no we're not definitely not we have an urgent advocacy message to put out there and i appreciate you and your listeners for helping get that message out because it's doubtful that my book will get in the hands of every person on the planet most people don't want to be bothered with it but i i hope that we can really bring this to mainstream attention because there are many young children being born many couples who are frustrated that they can't get pregnant people struggling with many aspects of their lives that could just be made easy. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So what would perhaps be your top three tips for people suffering with oxalate overload? One is take a deep breath and get ready to change your thinking for the rest of your life. Do not stress out about having to learn it all now and get it all right. Let yourself have your grief moment of, yes, you grew your own figs and damaged yourself. There's there's a certain amount of trauma just in learning, like, wait, I was wrong. It's not your fault. You've been given bad information. And do not spend two minutes blaming yourself if you feel like, oh, crap, I did this to myself. Mm -hmm. So number one, take a deep breath. Be compassionate with yourself and the the process it takes to recover from this. Number two, don't worry about the changes you're going to make. They're going to end up being easier than you think they are. And number three, you're going to make mistakes, but it's okay. You just need to keep coming back and back and back. Get the book, reread the book, come to one of my group sessions, plug into those of us who understand this and see if you can find other people in your community that are willing to understand this and build a little bit of social support But if you can't, just keep using the book and the podcast interviews and other things to give yourself company in the process of becoming an odd fish. Mm. Yeah, I mean, one of the subjects that I would love to have come on to, and I know we're running out of time, but what I would say is, you know, again, clearly in the book, you show there's a two-phase process to go through as well when clearing oxalates. Now, we're not going to talk about it on this podcast, so you're going to have to go and buy Sally's book. So do you just want to give people an idea of, well, first of all, the name of the book and also where they can get it from? Okay, well, the book is called Toxic Superfoods because it turns out high oxalate foods are called superfoods so much of the time. And you can get it anywhere in either a print book, an ebook, or an audio book. It's come out in Spanish. It's soon to be out in German and it'll be coming out in Polish, Vietnamese, and Chinese. We're still waiting to hear from other language publishers. You can get a data companion where you can get a detailed data guide from my website starting in mid-February of 2024. And um, there's a cookbook on my website as well and other resources there. So definitely check out the book and 
make an effort to really read it. Most people find it's quite readable. For I've packed a lot of science for the science geeks. I've packed some references in there to get you started. There's maybe 600 references. You can start reading those if you're really into it. But if you're not, it's readable enough that anybody can take a lot from the book and get some support for it. Yes, you just start slowly. Just figure out your top four foods that are really high oxalate and find something else to do with them. And one at a time, no big dramatic life overhaul, Mm -hmm. but in the end, a profound one that will be lasting. Yeah, I mean, spoiler alert, it's actually best not to rush this process anyway. It's best to go slow. Absolutely. Yeah, awesome. So what's next to you, Sally? Oh, we're just trying to get these things done for everyone. We'll get a video course done this coming year. We'll get the data book out uh, and so on. And you keep this educational process and try to support everybody in finding a new path for health. It's been fun. I would love to see more and more younger people pick this up so they don't do this to their kids. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I'd agree. I definitely agree with that. And where can people find you online, Sally? My website, which is sallyknorton.com, sallyknorton.com. There's a bunch of stuff there and you can reach out to me in social media, but you're better off writing to me through the website if you need to communicate with us. We'd love to hear your story and have you come and join a group class or something like that. Yeah, I'll put all the details in the show notes of your website and all your social media as well. Yeah, I've got a YouTube channel. We'll be putting out stories there of people's recoveries and some fun things that hopefully be little short things. It's easy to share with your friends and family when you're trying to like figure out how to talk about it. Maybe the shorts and things on my YouTube channel, I'm hoping will help you do that. Mm. Yeah. And I, you know, I've probably listened to, I think three or four of your previous podcast episodes as well. So definitely look up, you know, Sally's previous podcast episodes, because they're all slightly different. Always give a slightly different message as well. So yeah, I'd highly recommend you check those out. Just in 2023, I did at least 80, maybe more podcasts, mm. and plus another articles, TV shows, radio shows. Yeah, yeah. So, Sally, thanks so much for coming on. I've really enjoyed it. I could probably speak to you all day, um, but I know you've, you've you've got to shoot. But um, yeah, just thank you so much, and you know, to the audience, make sure you go and buy Sally's book. No, it's a delight to connect with you. Thank you for having me. I look forward to next time. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. So that's all from Sally and me for this week. But don't forget, you can join me same time, same place next week on the Radical Health Rebel podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Remember to give the show a rating and a review, and I'll see you next time.